I don't know what you took away from that last session, but there was a lot, wasn't there? Man, that was a great start, opening up the word. Dr. Carson, thank you for your ministry. That'll be one we'll need to go back and listen to again, right? We're going to have those, I think, posted online for you after the conference is concluded at some point next week. And I want you to be aware of that. We will definitely need to absorb and be nourished by those words of truth that were given to us again. Well, in the second session, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Leonce Crump. And let me introduce you to him a little bit, as he might be uh, less familiar to us as he is in other parts of the country. Uh, Pastor Leonce is originally from New Orleans, from Louisiana, and uh, and was raised Catholic there. Surprise, right? But then he, he was... Uh, he came to Christ at the age of 16 years old. He's a graduate of the University of Oklahoma, where he was a wrestler and a football player. None of that will surprise you when he stands in this pulpit in just a few minutes. Uh, but while he was at college, uh, Christ began to call him into full-time Christian ministry. After college, he continued to, pe- to co- compete for the world team in wrestling. He played professional football uh, for the St. Louis or uh, New Orleans Saints and then also for the St. Louis Rams. Also for, uh, I think he just said he tried out for Tampa Bay as well. So I'll let you tell him, uh, him a little more about that. He earned a master's degree in criminal justice from the University of Tennessee, uh, a missional leadership master's from the Resurgence Training Center, and is currently finishing his master's of divinity at Reformed Theological Seminary. But it was in 2006 that after his professional football career was over, he felt called to plant a church. And uh, after meeting and marrying his wife, Brianna, they decided to move from Tennessee down to Atlanta to plant a church uh, among the underserved in downtown. And in 2009, he was approved by the Acts 29 Church Planning Network in coordination with Perimeter Church in Atlanta. And their commitment to plant churches there began with the planting of Renovation Church in uh, that area. Leonce speaks regularly across the country. I think he, you were just in Dallas, I think. We're just speaking at an Acts 29 conference there and uh, is now out here, speaks all over the country. Here is his deal. He enjoys boxing, MMA, theology, football, church structure, and poetry. I just love this guy. MMA and poetry. Do you do those at the same time? That would be sweet. Sometimes. All right, good, good. I've, uh, I just want you to know, though, beyond that, that I've been greatly encouraged by, by studying this man's ministry. Uh, I would encourage you to go online and, and look over what God is doing in this church in downtown Atlanta and study how it is that they uh, minister to those people all around them there in the underserved areas of Atlanta. I would encourage you to, to listen to more of his preaching and be ministered to by the gospel uh, in his life's work. I've appreciated Leonce's critical input on issues of race and reconciliation. I did some reading on that, that, that Pastor Leonce has uh, served us with in the evangelical world. And I just want to thank you for adding your voice and perspective to that massive issue that we all need to give more attention to in our time. So it's my great privilege to introduce to you, if you don't know him before, or to reintroduce to you Pastor Leonce Crump as he opens the word to us. Thank you for coming, brother. That was certainly a kind uh, introduction, and, uh, and for it, I'm, I'm grateful, brother. I, um, I certainly don't deserve those, those wonderful accolades. The Lord has been exceedingly kind uh, in our lives. Um, Renovation Church is really a mystery 
of God to me. We are uh, a transcultural church uh, in downtown Atlanta, and, uh, and God has favored us uh, with immense growth and opportunity. Uh, and we are a global church and a church planning church, and, and I'm still amazed and now encouraged by Dr. Carson uh, not to despise my youth. Uh, I'm certainly the youngest man here. And, uh, and I do often find myself, uh, frittering on Twitter. And, uh, that's one. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, uh, it, it is an incredible privilege, uh, to be here with you and have, uh, the honor of sharing the Word of God with you. Uh, so I, I won't go on about myself any further because I am not, uh, center here. The Word of God is. Amen? So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, or you want to turn on your Bible, uh, as Dr. Carson said, uh, would you open it to Acts chapter 4? Acts chapter 4. When you get it, uh, we are going to add to traditions uh, in the Christian faith, and I'm going to have you stand, and we are going to read the Word of God together in unison. Uh, so when you got it, as the old Pentecostal preachers say, say, I got it. All right, y'all might be all right. Now listen, when Dr. Carson was preaching, and he was preaching, I was the only one saying amen. <laughs> now, if y'all not going to help me preach, I'm going to be very sad about that. Right. Now, now I, I understand, as I said, I'm, a, I'm, I'm leading a transcultural church, and I've learned that uh, my Korean and Chinese and, and uh, Filipino and Anglo brothers uh, take notes uh, uh, vigorously, and that's the way they say amen. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm okay with that. As long as I see you taking vigorous notes, then I will believe that you are with me. And for the brown folks in here, if you're not saying amen, we're going to have a problem. All right? Acts chapter 4, we will read it all together, uh, starting in verse 23, all the way through 30. Actually, 31. Please read with me. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The word of the Lord. Please pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. 
And we're going to ask for God's help. Father, it is a great privilege to sit beneath your word. We are mere men and women, heralds and delivery people of good news. I pray now in this solemn moment that you would set this man aside. I have nothing to offer, nothing to give, but you have everything to offer, everything to give. And so I pray that you would speak directly to the hearts of every person here, that we would experience you and not only know you cognitively, but experience you through the full breadth of our emotions and know when we leave this moment that we have been face to face with the living God. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, please be seated. Being from the South, uh, particularly South Louisiana, though I grew up Catholic, as you all heard, uh, uh, in an all-black Catholic church with a Latin mass, if you can believe that, uh, it does exist, just like African-American Reformed people. We are out here. Uh, <laughs> uh I did grow up familiar with the idea of revival. But my idea of revival, uh, the one in which I was born and bred, was one that uh, involved chicken dinners, uh, a larger-than-life personality, long nights with incredible music, an inspiring, albeit slightly unbiblical message, about what God intended to do in a place and among a people that went on for a week at a time, two weeks, if the Holy Spirit really broke out. Uh, and then it would subsequently come to an end. That was my interpretation, my understanding of what revival was for many, many years. And so when I adopted a uh, reformed theological framework and understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation and all matters and understanding that I could not save myself, could not earn my salvation, nor could I lose it because it was granted as a gift. And, and, and I began to adopt these beliefs. Then I began to push away the even the good things about the nature of revival. And I began to fear and resist any manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit in any uh, miraculous or undesignated or intensified manner. It was only a few years ago that I was able, I believe under the wonderful direction of the Lord, to marry what what the Word of God said in the uh, reformed unfolding of redemptive history with the active and present moving of the Holy Spirit and God's outworking and manifestation uh, in the gifts for the sake of the Word, spreading the gospel to the world for the people that He is saving. In fact, I came up with a word for it. It's called reformatic. You may have it disturb your preachers with it, uh, and then point back to me. They're not going to mess with me because I'm probably twice their size. So you will be okay with saying what you need to say. 
It is in that spirit that I want to share with you today on prayer and the blessing of God, prayer and the sparking of a revival. And I want to start by pointing uh, in my initiating to where Dr. Carson left off. He spoke of the wonderful Welsh revival where some 100,000 conversions took place in a single year. And it began to spark a movement that extended far beyond the Welsh people. As a matter of fact, and I just learned this from reading Colin's book, uh, that there was a great revival in my city, Atlanta, in 1905. I pray God would revisit us there again. But the one that I want to turn your attention to is the one that took place among the Korean people. You see, for years and years and years, missionaries had persisted there in prayer and in preaching the Word of God. As Dr. Carson just laid out for us, they had been diligent in communicating and leading through the Scriptures. Yet they had seen very little movement. And yet near the end of the 1800s, Christianity began to take hold and Christianity began to flourish and to blossom. And what it was founded on was the prayers of the people. An expectant prayer that God could and would move. That's when you say, you're easily trainable, praise God. One minister, a Canadian medical missionary, Dr. R.A. Hardy, in the midst of his discouragement, wrote that I had been yearning for years to see Koreans convicted of sin and led to a repentance and faith evidencing the fruits thereof. But up to that time, I had not seen any connection with my own work, any examples of plain, unmistakable, and lasting conversion. I had seen many led to an intellectual knowledge and acceptance of these things, but I knew a few who gave any adequate evidence of knowing them as an actual and living experience. And then something happened. One night in their annual week-long prayer and word meeting, He confessed his discouragement. He confessed his unwillingness to trust God. He confessed his fear and his doubt. He confessed that he did not believe that God could do the things that they desired to see in Korea. He read and spoke from Luke chapter 11 where Jesus explains that his Father gives the Holy Spirit to everyone who asks for him. And something profound took place. In the midst of that prayer and in the midst of that confession, the Korean leadership who was there began to testify of their frailty and testify of their sin and testify of their fear and testify of their discouragement and testify of their brokenness and share their need for an outpouring of God. And all of a sudden, as they openly confess their sin, as they pleaded with the Father for a 
exceptional move of his hand. A revival began to spark. A revival movement began to explode. I want to circle back to that. The results of that. But suffice it to say that phenomenal things began to happen. Men began to return to their hometowns, confessing sins to neighbors, believers and unbelievers, returning money gained in ill-gotten ways, turning themselves in for things that they had done. And the revival began to propagate itself in the movement of God such that between 1906 and 1907, Presbyterian churches grew from 54,000 members to 73,000. The Methodists grew from 18,000 to 39,000. In fact, over a five-year period, the Korean church added 80,000 converts, more than they had seen in the region in the previous 80 years. What was it? What was it? Was it the work of a phenomenal preacher? It doesn't seem so. Was it the work of strategic leadership and, and, and and qualified men coming up with wonderful plans on how to get the gospel to every single person in their designated area? Those things are not wrong. But they're not the things that spark and propagate a move of God. No, what it was founded on, what was foundational, what was necessary was a faith to believe that God would move. An expectant prayer at what they desired to see. As I read this, my heart was stirred. And simultaneously convicted. As I, like the good medical missionary, had to confess that, that oftentimes I lack the faith and the freedom to believe that God still transforms cities and nations. That I lack the faith to pray so boldly to see 100,000 conversions. That I lack the spirit-given fortitude to seek God in earnest for the sake of my city and through my city for the sake of the world. Now, I'm not saying that, that we believe that we can produce revival or a movement of God. I'll use those words interchangeably. What I am saying, though, is that we must believe that we can pray with expectation and that God will respond in kind. Because God's desire to see the Bay Area transformed is far greater than you could ever begin to desire. And God's desire 
to see the world under the humble, in humble submission under the mighty hand of Jesus is far greater than we could ever fathom. But we have a part to play. And that is to pray with glorious expectation and believe and labor, as Paul said, with all of his energy with which he energizes us until we see his hand move. The apostles believed against all odds that God would transform their world. And that is how inside of a hundred years they went from a movement of 12 to a movement of thousands. And I believe in earnest more than I ever have that it was a movement of prayer that catalyzed this movement of God. My hope in leaving this moment, is that we can believe the same. Now, to the Word of God. There are four things that I hope to stir our hearts toward. I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then we'll walk through them. Number one, revival or movement. Revival or movement. And the prayer that necessitates it is undeniably catalyzed by pressure. Now, I won't get into your message there, Doc, but got to say a little something about the comfortable church versus the pressured one. Number two, revival requires prayer that is primarily Godward. Revival requires prayer that is primarily Godward. I'll explain. Number three, revival prayer is filled with clear petition. Revival prayer is filled with clear petition. And number four, revival requires prayer for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm Presbyterian. I do believe he still works. Revival requires prayer for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Where we pick up this narrative in Acts chapter 4, the apostles have just been released from prison. But it would be unjust for me to begin there without giving you the context in which this narrative unfolds. You don't have to turn there, but I want to give you a little bit of the story. In Acts chapter 3, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, after the good Dr. Luke describes to us the daily life of the believers in Acts chapter 2, in this swelling and growing church, this burgeoning movement of God, we see Peter and John passing by a lame man at the temple. During the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. Dr. Luke tells us that this man was laid here almost daily so that he could beg alms. So that his needs could be met. His physical needs could be met. Well, the apostles happen upon him. 
And when he turns to beg them for alms, Peter says, one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Not an excuse not to take care of the poor, by the way. He says, silver and gold I do not have. But I can give you something far greater. Something that will alter you forever. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Dr. Luke says that the man's ankles and his feet were immediately strengthened, that he popped up with great vigor and he worshipped the Lord. Entered the temple with the apostles. Following this glorious event, it says that Peter began to preach an incredible sermon, a a powerful word of God about what Jesus had accomplished and what his name means for salvation. And that they needed him for heaven is holding him only until the appointed time when all things will be restored. That's what took place in chapter 3. Chapter 4 opens up and it says, as they were speaking, as Peter was preaching, and I, and I imagine like a, a good reformatic church, the apostle John was like, come on, doc, go ahead. Go ahead, doc. Because it says they were speaking. I don't think they were doing like a tag team preach-off, so he must have been helping the brother preach a little bit. As they were speaking, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That's chapter 4, verse 1. And greatly annoyed at them for their teaching and proclaiming Jesus as the uh, one resurrected from the dead, They arrested them and put them in custody. Now, the Sadducees were the power brokers in this era. They were the ones who were complicit in much of the Roman rule over Israel because the Sadducees got the benefits of uh, of going along with what Rome desired. They got to be placed uh, almost automatically as the high priests whenever the election season came and they got to hold on to much of their wealth and their riches. So they had no desire to rock the boat. Yet here were these men going around preaching that the man that that the Romans had sacrificed had in fact been the Lord and that he had come back from death. That will disrupt their interests. The Sadducees further did not believe in the things that they were saying. They did not believe in the oral traditions of the Pharisees. They did not believe in life beyond this life. They did not believe in angels or demons. They did not believe in any of those things, but saw them as myths. And so the competing forces that we have are the aristocracy, the landholders, the the intellectual knowledge holders versus unlearned fishermen who are disrupting their interests. There was much at stake. 
And so they had them arrested. Despite the adversarial nature of their work, uh, the sermon was no less effective. And Dr. Luke tells us that, that after Peter preached, that many believed and the number of men that, that came into fellowship with Christ was about 5,000. The work of God was not disrupted. The work of God could not be diminished. Now, you would think upon his arrest and, 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 and subsequent uh, uh, bondage that Peter would calm down a little bit. But we know in Acts chapter 2 that he had been filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with an increased boldness. And so when they began to examine him and ask him about the name Jesus and, and, and by what power this man was healed and under whose authority this man was raised and he began to speak the name of Jesus, he began preaching another mini-sermon filled with boldness from God. They were astonished, says. Astonished first because these men had no knowledge And no basis for the authority upon which they were speaking. Astonished. Because like Jesus, they seemed to possess an otherworldly understanding of how the world functions. Astonished at their boldness. But they could bring no charges against them. And so after they had called them together and, and interrogated them thoroughly and heard Peter's sermonette. They threatened them. Told them that they were no longer to speak the name of Jesus. To incite in the people any, any riotous emotions about what God could do in their lives but that they were to walk away and never speak of him again. Finding no way to punish them, they released them and and further threatened them. And then they sent them on their way. And that is what we pick up in our narrative. Now, all of those things are important because they create the context in which these prayers are prayed. And that's number one, that a revival movement is, is catalyzed and revival prayer is catalyzed undeniably by pressure. Now, what do I mean by that? Where here, here you have the apostles going around under the unction of the Holy Spirit doing what God asked them to do. They're immediately arrested. This would only intensify. The persecution would only intensify over the years. Over and over again, they would be faced with the option of either silencing themselves about what Jesus had accomplished and what God was doing and what God required and what God had done and what was taking place. Or to speak boldly. To continue to propagate the message of the gospel and continue 
to see it spread. The persecution would only intensify. That's what we immediately understand in 23. It says when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Can you imagine that? Being in that scene, being in that moment when they return, you've already been praying for them. You don't know what has happened to them. Uh, 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 the, the Sadducees are well known for killing without regard. Cite Jesus. They returned to this great crowd. I'm sure it was filled with emotion. And the men tell them, we've been told. We can no longer speak the name of Jesus. We've been told we can no longer proclaim his wondrous works. We've been told we can no longer unfold the mysteries of his goodness. We've been told that we can no longer extol the, the, the wonder of his grace. We've been told that we can't proclaim anymore that there is only one name by which men can be saved. We've been told that we must shut our mouth. Maybe that feels foreign to you. Maybe you are not aware of the time in which you live. A time when laws are presently being made to eliminate luxuries that we have long enjoyed as ministers of the gospel. From the simple your housing allowance is up for grabs presently to the intense. If you do not marry this couple, if you do speak with clarity on what the word of God says about a man and a woman, if you do speak the truth about what the word of God says about marriage, if you do stand with authority and boldness and proclaim and critique the cultural narrative against the redemptive historical narrative, the stakes are raising. As a matter of fact, this week at our elder meeting, we assigned two men to go into our bylaws and our constitution and accurately define marriage along biblical lines. Why is that? Well, because we found out uh, 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 through a friend of ours who is a lawyer, he's an adjudicator, that was going to be my path, so I still have many friends in that in that field and and we were told by him that we needed to shore up our bylaws because it would be the first line of protection when they come for the church that's an admonition to you as well to accurately define one man one woman why because in our day it will be legal for a man to marry a man and a woman to marry a woman all across the nation. It is going to happen. Right now, there are groups fighting to legalize polyamory. That is a marriage between three parties. 
The entire basis for biblical marriage is under assault. And if you think for one minute that, that you will be unscathed in the land of fruit and nuts, as my friend called it, from the city of Atlanta, which has surpassed San Francisco per capita for number of homosexuals, you're grossly mistaken. Now, there's a number of reactions we could have to that. A number of reactions that Christians do have to that. We could have a, a political reaction to the pressure on the church. And we can send around petitions and, 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 and boycott institutions and try to get politicians impeached. We could hope that they would legislate our doctrine. That's one reaction. A second reaction is, is the one that we so often see, and that is that we just bury our heads in the sand and have a kind of ignorant hopefulness that we will just pray and preach our way into glory. And these things will hopefully just fly by. Or we can have the reaction that the apostles had. Never losing sight of their desire to see a movement of God. Never losing sight of their belief that, that God wanted to transform the Greco-Roman world. Never losing sight that they had a mandate upon them to go from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. Never losing sight of that. yet remaining aware of the context in which they would try to see those things happen. We could pray. We could be pushed to our knees to obey the Word of God and pray for our leaders, to obey the Word of God and pray that God's hand would would hedge us to pray and ask God for faithfulness, to pray and ask God for fervency, to pray and ask God that he would not have us shrink back in the face of the mounting pressure. And that is what these disciples did. Again, that's why we kind of narrated the, 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 the preceding verses as they did what God said and healed this man and did what God said and proclaimed the gospel and, and were arrested and told that if you do that again, there will be consequences. But if we would be those, Believing in earnest that God's desire is to renew the earth. That God's desire is to reconcile mankind to himself. That God's desire is to restore what he once called very good to better than good. That God's desire is that heaven would consume this present reality, Revelation 21, 
and we will not fight political pressure with politics and we will not bury our heads in the sand as though we don't know what is taking place, but we will be those push the faithful prayer that God would move in the face of pressure. Amen. Pressure. Revival and movement. Prayer is undeniably catalyzed by pressure. In America in particular, we have existed in a comfortable Christendom for centuries that has come to a rapid end, or as I say to many of my friends, the Bible belt is broken. The buckle is shattered, I promise you. In the city of Atlanta, you may think that that because there's a church building a shell of God's former work sitting on every corner that we have the God of that former work. I could rattle off statistics, but that wouldn't help you. What will help you is to see the pattern laid out for us. That in the face of pressure, we turn to prayer. Number two, revival, seeing a movement of God requires that prayer is primarily Godward. That's intentional. Look how they begin. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, God, save us. No. No, the first thing they did was acknowledge who it is that they serve. Maybe the simplicity of this diminishes its importance. But if there is a person in here who would be so bold to say that in every moment, in every hour, in every circumstance, in every, in every critical moment that you first acknowledge who it is that you serve, well then we can close the book and be done. But because I know myself and because I know my congregation and because I know people, then I know that's not true. Often, our first thoughts are not Godward, they are usward, or problem-oriented, or results-focused, rather than first pointing out the greatness of our Father. But they begin by acknowledging that God is sovereign, meaning He is in control of all things. You know how alleviating that is. How freeing that is. Freeing from fear, freeing from doubt, freeing from shame, freeing from the need to clamp down and control everything because God is sovereign. And He's in control of all things. That is where they turn first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we hear you, Peter. We hear you, John. 
We, we, we understand the mounting pressure and so we're going to turn to prayer but not to relieve the pressure. But to acknowledge where our hope is. Sovereign Lord God who controls everything. Who controls the means and the ends. Who controls the genesis of ideas and the outcomes. Who who navigates the situation and creates the situation. The God who is in control of everything. Who made the earth. Who made the heavens. Who made the sea and everything in them. The progression of the prayer is beautiful. They start with his authority, his control, his infinite worth, his infinite grandeur, his infinite gloriousness. And then they, then they put it in the context of what they know. If I was to summarize it, there is nothing in my reality where you don't exert authority and control. Heaven, you've got it. Earth, you've got it. The sea, you've got it. What should I be worried about? What should I fear? Why should I lose sleep? No, everything in this material reality has life and breath movement and being in your person or, or or you hold all things together by the word of your power or, or you are the firstborn in you was life and the life was the light of men there was nothing outside of the control of your hands. If we want to see a movement of God. If we want to see revival in the Bay and revival in the Midwest and revival in the South. Then our prayers have to be inherently Godward. Beginning with an acknowledgement. That there is nothing outside of his control. Do you believe that? Or do we just say those things? Do we, do we say those things with our lips, but our, but our hearts are, are, are far from the declarations of our mouths? Would we be willing, like the good doctor and the Korean peoples among whom he ministered, to confess that we don't trust God to move? And so we try, through all of our tactics, to manufacture movement. I am chief among them. Chief among them. Chief pragmatist. I am the repentant executive who asked God to make me a spiritual leader. Revival prayer is inherently and primarily God-word. I don't think I need to extrapolate it any further. Even though they speak of David the servant, it points back to God and the Holy Spirit. 
Even though they communicate that the Gentiles rage. Those who, who turned loose Barabbas and, 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 and class on to Jesus. And the people plot in vain. Those are the Israelites who, who conspired to turn Jesus over to the Gentiles. And the rulers gathered together, Pontius, Pilate, and Herod gathered together to, to, to try and overturn the work of the kingdom. Well, they acknowledge those things. It always turns back to God and an understanding that nothing happens that has not been a part of his plan or an extension of his hand. If we're going to see a move of God in our day, then we have to respond to the pressure with prayer. And when we respond to the pressure with prayer, then our prayers first have to be inherently Godward. Soul-stirring belief that He can and will move. Number three, revival prayers filled with clear petitions. In my transition phase from Blathlick to Caracathabaptocostal <laughs> to staunchly Presbyterian, the word Holy Spirit scares me. And I'm not saying that about all Presbyterians, just most Presbyterians who I happen to be among. to this reformatic understanding of the work of God. I went through this strange phase where I felt bad about asking God for stuff. It wasn't pious. No, brother. If you just Pray God's will be done. Then he will do what he will in his time. That's my best white guy voice. <laughs> can't, uh, can't do any better than that. Old white guy. Young white guy's a little more nasally. A little... I'd like to plead with you to believe if you would just, come on guys, I just, you know. My two attempts. I always say when I say stuff like that, I'm, I'm married to a white chick, so you can't call me racist. So I can just <laughs> kind of do whatever I want. Uh, I, I went through this phase where, where I'd begun to believe this strange idea that we could not petition the Lord. That it was, that it was somehow selfish. To, to ask God to move on our behalf. That it was some, somehow wrong and, 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 and unbiblical. Uh, against all common knowledge and wisdom. As half of the Psalms are petitioned for God to move on someone's behalf. And I feel like some of that runs in the current of our stream of, evangel- uh, of evangelicalism. That, 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 that if we were to petition God in earnest, 
and that that that, that petition would benefit us in any way that that somehow that prayer is not pleasing to God. You see the tension, right? It is, the, the, the prayer is primarily, inherently Godward, but it, but it doesn't diminish, it doesn't eliminate not only the ability, but God's desire to bring our earnest requests before Him. I think there's a couple reasons we don't do that. The number one reason is, 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 is a lack of faith. You can call it fear. You can call it, what if God doesn't? What if God doesn't? Like, like, like James is explicit. That if you have any sick among you, bring them to the elders. And have the elders pray over them, lay hands on them with oil. Now, it doesn't say canola, it doesn't say olive, it doesn't say sesame, right? I prefer an extra virgin. It's got a nice light smell to it. But it says that. And, 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 and I'll confess, I know you are, you are good and holy people. You don't struggle with these things. So, so I will be the scapegoat of the day. And say that I, that I find myself laying hands on the sick. With cancer. Fearful of praying boldly that God would heal them. Having to qualify the prayer. Lord, if it be your will. Well, he's God. He knew what his will was before you knew what the word will was. He knew what his will was before the person you're praying for was an idea in their parents' mind. He knew what his will was before the the chair in which they're sitting existed in the room in which they're sitting existed in the building in which it exists, existed on the block on which it's been built in the city in which it is located. He knew as well. I don't need to hide my fear under an if it be your will prayer. That's one way that comes out. I'm not saying always. That's just one way. We, we hide behind that. Because if they're not healed, then we can say, well, we prayed only if it be God's will. God doesn't need you to tell him what his will is. He doesn't need to be reminded that it is all according to his sovereign hand. He knows. And if we pray in earnest, petitioning the Lord for his hand to move, And the same faith that allows us to pray in boldness is the faith that allows us not to get discouraged when it doesn't come to pass in our timing or at all. That's the tension in which we exist. That's one reason we don't ask God for things. Uh, uh, another reason is, is, is what I named in myself already. We fear being thought selfish, less holy. 
less godly, less learned. Oh, there's a litany of reasons. But I don't want to waste my time on the reasons that we don't pray those prayers. I want to encourage you that, that, that what the disciples did after they acknowledged the sovereignty of God, acknowledged the majesty of God, acknowledged the power of God, acknowledged the wonder of God and His absolute control and authority over all things was turned to Him and directly asked Him for what they desired to see Him do without reservation. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. If we are going to see a move of God in our day, I believe it does not diminish the sovereignty of God to just ask him for it. To pray with expectant hope that our desires to see souls saved, to see cities transformed, to see families restored, to see movements of the gospel explode, to see works of the Holy Spirit propagated, that our desires align with His, that we can pray filled with clear petition. It is what characterized the Welsh Revival. As the young man who, who is said to have been uh, uh, singularly connected with it, Roberts, prayed and asked God, prayed and asked him for a hundred thousand conversions in Wales. Can we pray with that boldness? Or, or, or better yet, when is the last time you prayed for 100,000 conversions in Walnut Creek? 100,000 conversions in San Jose. 100,000 conversions in Oakland. Or more. When is the, the last time that you prayed with expectant hope? That you were not here just spinning your wheel. God would revive in you a sense of expectancy that would lead to a prayer movement among your people and belief that God would turn his ear and incline his hand doesn't make him any less sovereign. Dr. Carson would tell you that. He wrote a book about it. One of the 726, I think they named. I'm 33. I've got one. I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> got some time. But 
When's the last time you prayed with that expectancy, that fervor? A persistent petition that God would bring revival. Lastly, we'll close. Revival requires an outpouring and prayer for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is dangerous. There is a danger that because of a lack of adequate training, that people would become enamored with the gifts and the experiences of a spirit-led movement. It happened at Azusa. It happened with the Welsh revival. It happened in the Great Awakening. But should the danger of what could happen restrain us from asking in earnest that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh in miraculous and intensified ways. Now, of course, here in the text, we know, verse 31, that this is not a second Pentecost. Pentecost has already taken place. Tongues of fire have already descended. They have already spoken in other languages. The gospel was already preached to thousands and the church grew by that number. This is not a second Pentecost. But what it is, is one of many instances we see in the scriptures of a renewal and a refilling of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. And here in the beginning of Acts is this burgeoning revival movement is finally starting to take hold. They experience a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit. Now in order to experience a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit, you've got to believe that that God is Truly triune. And I'm not talking about the traditional reformed belief of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's okay to laugh uncomfortably right there. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We can own it. I own it with you. Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Regulative principle for the most tight of us. And so we limit the scope of God's work to our own mental capacity and expectation. But if we're going to see a revival movement in 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 the bay, if we're going to see a revival movement in the south, if we're going to see a revival movement in the northeast, if we're going to see a revival movement in the Midwest, it's going to require an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a renewal of God's Spirit in our work and in our life. 
And again, so that I am good and orthodox, I'm not talking about a second blessing. I'm not talking about a second Pentecost. I'm talking about the continual and restorative work of God's Holy Spirit as we move through sanctification and toward glorification. I'm talking about an intensified outpouring of His Spirit that leads to supernatural things that we cannot qualify. Like Cambodia. If you're a student of history, you know that Cambodia was ravaged by the Khmer Rouge. Cambodia holds a special place in my heart. I visited the killing fields three times now. I've seen the mountains of skulls. I've seen the limbless 40-year-olds who were babies then and somehow survived. I've seen the blight of the people. And yet, because of their Godward prayer, In the face of pressure. You know, my, my team almost got kicked out of the country when we were there because of the pressure of the government. Because of their Godward prayer and their persistent petition and their belief. And literal, literal begging for the Holy Spirit to pour out upon all flesh. There is a movement of God happening there. When I was there last, there was an 18-year-old young man who I encouraged not to despise his his youth. Gathering almost a thousand children in the jungle every Sunday to preach the gospel to them. There were Vietnamese pastors stealing away through the jungles across the country's borders and establishing churches in the provinces and villages. There were uh, Kamai men and women buying back prostitutes and sex slaves, establishing learning centers and, and, and microfinance projects, and planting churches in every corner of the country that they could fathom. And what was consistent across every story, consistent across every opportunity, consistent across every leader from the 18-year-old to the 76-year-old who was kind of the patriarch of this small movement, was a radical but Biblical belief that they were experiencing a renewed and tangible filling of the Holy Spirit that rested upon their prayers and rested upon their work. And they prayed for it and they longed for it and they desired it. They saw it and are seeing it come to pass.
That is the pattern we see here in this wonderful text. There's more there than I can even cover. But that is certainly the, the, the movement that we see there as the disciples faced with the pressure that comes from fidelity to the gospel turn to prayer instead of fear and in their prayer they 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 begin with a godward focus and an acknowledgement of whom they serve and then they persist in their petition to see God acknowledge the threats that they have received but not shrink back but rather ask for more boldness and ask for more wonder from God. And in that, God responds by shaking the house and renewing the spirit. And they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. What do we take from this? I'll give you one thing. That we would be those that would pray with expectation and speak with boldness, believing that God will move. That we would be those that would pray with expectation and speak with boldness, Believing that God will move. What would be different here if that were the case? For you visionary leaders. For you mothers who long for a different world for your child to grow up in. For you students who who have so much life in front of you. For you pastors, who like all pastors, I pastor a church, I'm not a circuit speaker, I know you struggle with thoughts that you labor in vain. What would be different here if we were those who prayed with expectation and spoke with boldness, believing that God would move, believing That his desire for revival is far different than ours. Far greater, rather, than ours. Could we see a 100,000 conversions, Pastor? Could we see that? Could, could we, could we see as, as the post reported during the great Welsh revival as it spread all over the world that, that the police had nothing to do Because everyone was kind of captivated by a universality of the golden rule. Could we believe that broken souls and broken systems could be overturned? What could we see in our day? Well, instead of talking about it, we're going to pray for it. Right now. Let me read this to you. As I close. 
This is from Collins' work again on the Korean revival. The Koreans were further encouraged to expect, expect that God would work in powerful ways to revive their whole land. Indeed, the revival intensified during the opening week of 1907. Meeting in Pyongyang on January 6, 1907, about 1,500 missionaries, keep that number in mind, 1,500 missionaries and indigenous leaders persevered through momentary discouragement to offer expectant prayers. What are expectant prayers? Well, if you have a grasp of the English language, then you know what an expectant anything is. At one point, Korean leader Graham Lee asked for prayer. And several people led out at the same time. He responded, if you want to pray like that, all pray. So all 1,500 prayed out loud at the same time. Many wept over their sins as they realized their need for God's grace and forgiveness. Leaders who harbored silent jealousy confessed and reconciled. Presbyterian, and this is why I can't pick on my Presbyterian brothers too much, Presbyterian missionary William Blair remembered, I quote, The effect was indescribable. Not confusion, but a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer. Another brother described it this way. The prayer sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. It was not many but one, born of one spirit, lifted to one Father above. Would you stand? For the next few minutes, I would like us together, as brothers and sisters, to offer to God an ocean of expectant prayer that would beat his throne, believing that he would respond. We'll take 30 seconds. We'll take a minute, maybe. And then I'll say amen. But here's what I want you to do is the word says here that when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. And as the Korean leaders did then and still do today, if you've ever visited a Korean church in Korea in particular, they still pray out loud together at the same time. Wherever you are, wherever you're from, whatever you need God to do to revive and spark movement where you're serving. And let us petition him together right now. I'll begin. Let's pray out loud together. Father.
I need you to move in Atlanta, God. I need your great grace there. I need you to overturn hearts of the broken. I need the gospel to be received in power. I pray for my mayor that he would not slow down the progress of the church, that he would not deny properties and buildings, that he would not be one to hinder the move of God. I pray, Father God, that that we would see in my day 200,000 conversions. And not only conversions, but disciples. That hundreds of churches would be planted. That thousands of people would come to faith. That the government would be, would be uh, forced to submit to the move of God. That police officers would have nothing to do. That women would not sell themselves because men will not buy them. That prostitution rings would shut down. That strip clubs would shut down. Father God, that you would be magnified. That you would be glorified. That we would see your spirit. That we would see your great grace. That we would experience your mercy. That we would experience your glory. That we would experience your power. That we would experience your grace. That we would see you move in our day. Sovereign Lord, mighty God, powerful God, awesome God, merciful God, wondrous God. That we would experience you in a way in this generation that has never been experienced before. That we would see revival. We ask it in the name of the Father. We ask it in the name of the Son. We ask it in the name of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you.